Miranda was talking about the miles that we've put on our motorhome this, this summer and now fall. I mean, driving from Los Angeles all the way to the eastern coast and back to Arizona and now up into the northwest, hours and hours and hours on the road. And so Des, as we call her, I mean, she, she spends those hours on her iPad. And on an iPad, you could pretend to be almost any superhero you wanted to be. You could pretend to do almost anything you could imagine doing. When I was a kid and I wanted to play superhero, mom did not hand me an iPad. She handed me a tattered old bath towel and a clothespin. And I'd draw that towel over my shoulders and cinch it up under my chin. Mom would help get that clothespin fastened. And hours of fun would follow. I mean, kids nowadays would get like five minutes out of that. And the first three of those would be spent complaining about how lame it was. But we could make it work all day, right? Isn't it true, though, that even now as adults, I mean, don't we still want to be a hero? Isn't there something inside of you that still longs to do something heroic? Something inside of you that yearns to live heroically? That's what we want to talk about in our time together in God's Word. So let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, because there we are going to meet a woman who was a hero, a woman who did something heroic, a woman who learned to live heroically. And from her life, we're going to learn some of the things that, that have to happen in our lives if we, too, are going to live heroically. So Joshua chapter 2, even as you're finding your place, Father, I'm going to pause and pray that you would speak to us through the words on the page in front of us. Lord, we do believe that the Bible is your word, that these ancient words are yours. We also believe that you're present here today and that in a powerful way you want to speak right here in this moment into our hearts, our minds, our souls, our lives. And we invite you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we're going to live heroically, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to let go of the past. So look with me at verse 1. It says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now, this is a generation after the Exodus. If you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, or maybe the animated version, The Prince of Egypt. This story takes place right after that story. Joshua has succeeded Moses, the people have crossed the river, and they're ready now to conquer the land that God has promised to them. And they come to this place called Acacia Grove. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should. Had we begun at the beginning? Had we started reading in Genesis and read all the way through to Joshua? Well, this place name would totally ring a bell, because this was the place where just one generation before, their fathers had been seduced by the women of Moab. Long story short, as a result of their unfaithfulness to God and their unfaithfulness to their families, 24,000 people died. Imagine the impact of that. I mean, that meant that going forward, there would be you know, people that were going forward without a father, people that were going forward without a son, people who were going forward without a, a brother or an uncle or a cousin. And, and you know that every year on an anniversary they'd be reminded and that every year on a birthday they'd be reminded. And you know that when this group of people began to gather here in this place where these things had happened, 
that they were reminded of how the choices of one generation affect the next. Reminds me of how I've been affected by the choices that my parents made. And, and it challenges me to think about the way that my choices have affected and, and, and will affect going forward my own children. Maybe your family isn't entirely different from mine. Maybe, maybe like in my case, in your case too, there has been something that just seems to repeat itself generation after generation after generation. Some, some thing, some issue, some problem that, that just keeps recurring and repeating over and over again. In my family, well, in my family, it was alcoholism. My dad was an alcoholic. Now, I'm really, really happy to report to you this morning that my dad's been sober now for years. And it was long after I was an adult and gone from home. But, but I, I can't tell you how happy I am for him. The quality of his life has gotten so much better since he got sober. But it wasn't just my dad. It was his dad before him. My grandfather was an alcoholic. You know, my grandfather on my dad's side. And it's kind of funny because I barely remember him. I barely remember what he looks like. I could probably count on one hand the number of times that I saw him in my entire life. And it's not because there was an opportunity. He lived well into my adulthood. But you see, he was, he was estranged from our family. He was alienated uh, from his family, from his kids and his, and his grandkids. He and my grandmother were married and divorced twice to each other. They were married, they got divorced, they got married a second time, and they got divorced again. And no doubt, uh, his alcohol abuse was a major factor in that. So, so that meant that my dad grew up without a father figure in the home. And that meant that my dad grew up largely in poverty. He lived with his mother and with his grandmother in the projects of Colton, California. And you know that that had to impact the way that he raised me and the way that he raised my sister. You know, when my grandfather passed away some years ago, I don't remember exactly how long it's been now, my dad did what family members do. He, he traveled to my grandfather's hometown, to his home, to sort out his personal belongings and, you know, take care of his affairs and so forth. And there, my dad found something interesting. He found a box. Now, I have a box like the one I'm about to describe, and I bet maybe some of you do too. Do you have a box somewhere where you have memories or keepsakes, things like that? I totally have one. Now, Now my box is in a storage unit in Austin, Texas, and I haven't seen it for a couple of years at least, but I know it's there, and inside that box is, is like my high school class ring, some coins that I've picked up in my travels around the world, you know, some keepsake type stuff. Do you have a box like that? Well, my grandpa had a box like that. So my dad found this box, and I was really surprised to learn about the contents of this box. One of the things that my dad found in the box were records pertaining to my grandparents' marriages and divorces. How interesting, right? But you know what else my dad found? My dad found one of my school pictures. And that blew my mind. I mean, I was really surprised by that and a little conflicted. I mean, part of me felt really, really good that, well, I made Grandpa's box. You know, even though I can barely remember his face, he thought that my face had a place in his box. But on the other hand, there was a part of me that felt really, really bad when I realized that whereas my box and probably yours is a box filled with memories, my grandfather's box was a box filled with regrets. 
It was a box filled with reminders of all the things that he had lost. All the things that he could have had and should have had, but, but didn't. And I tell you this whole story to make the point that you and I get to make a choice. As you're sitting here in this auditorium this morning, in this sanctuary, before you walk through the door with the glowing red exit sign, we have a choice, if we haven't made it already, to say that, that this is where that stops. That whatever it is that's happened over and over and over again in our family, no matter how many generations have been plagued by this thing, that it can stop here, it can stop now, it can stop with us. And I want you to understand that that was the mood in Acacia Grove as this group of people gathered there. A similar observation that has to do with the generation before, and that is that Moses sent, or excuse me, Joshua sent two spies. There's a reason that I slipped and said Moses. That's because Moses did exactly the same thing a generation before, except Moses sent 12 spies into the land. If you know the story, you know what happened. Ten of those spies came back with a negative report. They were like, there is no way we can do this. I don't care who God says we are. I don't care what God says we can do. There is no way that we can cross this river and conquer this land. Two of them one of whom was Joshua, by the way, came back with a positive report. And they're like, oh, we so got this. Like, we are exactly who God says we are. We can do exactly what God says we can do. Why are we even having this conversation? Like, why are we not taking the land right now? And sadly, the ten carried the day. And because the ten negative voices carried the day, an entire generation was doomed to die in the wilderness. Everyone of a certain age over the next, you know, nearly 40 years would die in the wilderness before this next generation would have the opportunity to conquer the land. That means that every single day people died. That means that every single day they had funerals. Over and over and over, day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. And you know that every time a body slid beneath the desert sand, that they were reminded of what happens when we listen to the wrong voices. What happens when we listen to people who say something different than what God says about who we are or about what we can do. Have you spent a whole life listening to and even believing those voices? Maybe you're that person who had nothing but negative reinforcement from the beginning. You know, maybe it was, it was a parent or it was a sibling who gave you nothing but negative reinforcement. Maybe it was a teacher or a coach. You know, it could have been a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe somehow you've gone through your entire life with someone saying something different than God does about who you are and what you can do. And if that's your life experience, I'm so sorry. I am, because I, I have an idea. I have some idea, though I couldn't possibly fully understand maybe what you've been through, but how painful that could be and how, how devastating that's been. But isn't it true that our biggest problem may not be with the voices on the outside, but with the voice on the inside? By which I mean the things we've told ourselves. Have you spent your whole life telling yourself that you're not enough, that you're not smart enough? 
that you're not fast enough, that you're not tall enough, that you're not handsome enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not spiritual enough, that, that somehow you don't have what it takes, that somehow you don't have what everybody else seems to have been blessed with. And, and that voice is that same negative voice that's at odds with God. So once again, we have the opportunity today to say that this is where that stops. If you've been listening to the wrong voices, if you've been listening to the wrong message, if you've been believing and repeating things that are at odds with what God says about who you are and what you can do, then today you get to decide, I'm not listening to that voice anymore. I'm going to start listening to God. I'm going to start believing what God says. And so again, I want you to understand that that's the mood as this group of people have gathered in Acacia Grove. Now, to move forward with the narrative, these spies were sent to gather intelligence. Notice it says, especially of Jericho. Now, I've been to Jericho. For the 18 years that I led Calvary Chapel in Austin, Texas, there was a season where every couple of years I took a group from our church to tour the Holy Land. Amazing experience. If you haven't been and you have the opportunity, you got to go. It's really cool. But one of the sites that you go to is Jericho. And, I mean, to be honest, Jericho is basically a big, giant hole in the ground. It's a great big dig, but it's still pretty amazing to stand and to look down into it. Did you know that the ancient city of Jericho has a very modern website? It's true. If you go home today and Google Jericho, boom, there it is. And on that website, it says that Jericho is the oldest city in the world. Now, I don't know about that, but what we're interested in is what it was like in ancient times, right? What was Jericho like at the time that this story takes place? So one of the things that you need to know about it for later in our Bible study is that Jericho had a wall around it. Apparently, the king of Jericho had promised voters that if elected, he would build a wall and the Hittites would pay for it. <laughs> so up the wall went. Now, in all seriousness, in ancient times, that really was a matter of national security. That wall was the difference between getting a good night's sleep and getting killed in your sleep. Your wife raped, your kids taken as slaves. I mean, that's just the reality of it. But what would happen if you ran out of room? What would happen if your population had grown and there was just nowhere else to put another family? You'd have to build a second wall. So picture a second, larger concentric circle, and the space between the inner wall and the outer wall like the suburbs. It's like old Jericho and new Jericho. So just make a mental note of that because, again, we'll come back to it. But the spies, when they get to Jericho, the first thing they do is they go to the red light district. What? You didn't see that coming, right? I mean, if I was new to the Bible, I would have all these presuppositions about what I was going to find there. This would not be one of those presuppositions. I would not see the story taking this turn. Now, quickly, let me just address a question that you might have, like, what in the world were they doing, you know, at Rahab's place? If there is anything inappropriate going on, the Bible doesn't say so. You know, I don't think the spies went to Rahab's place to get under the covers. I think they went there because they were undercover. For starters, they were following the flow of traffic, trying to go where those entering the city were going and to not do anything to draw attention to themselves. But perhaps more importantly, do not underestimate her value as an asset. I mean, there is no telling who Rahab might have known. 
There's no telling what information she might be privy to. It makes perfect sense as they were gathering information that they would talk to her. She might know things that, that you know, few other people would know. Certainly uh, no one else that they would likely have access to. So again, if anything inappropriate was going on, the Bible doesn't say so. But the Bible does say so about her and about what she was doing for a living. And I love it. I love that the Bible tells us that. You know, today there's just so much talk about being authentic as followers of Christ, about being transparent in our relationships with each other at church. And, and uh, you know, we talk about keeping it real. If we want to sound a little less hipster and a little more biblically literate, we say walking in the light, you know, lifting words from 1 John. We're really good at talking about it and really bad about doing it. I mean, seriously, do you think there is any place on earth that we keep it less real than at church. I mean, don't you think that most people are more authentic at home and at school and at work than they are at church? Don't you think that most of us are more transparent with our family members and our neighbors and our coworkers than we are with the people that we worship with? So that's kind of a funny thing, but I think there's a reason for it. I think there's a reason why we don't keep it real. I think there's a reason why we don't walk in the light. If you're new to church, welcome. I mean, you've got such an exciting journey ahead of you. But if you've, if you've been in church for a long time, then, then you know the truth of what I'm about to say. If you spent very long in church, not necessarily this church, I'm talking about churches in general, and maybe throughout your life you've had multiple church homes, but you were somewhere at some point when someone decided to be authentic decided to be transparent, and they opened up and they told their story, or they talked about what they were struggling with, or they asked for prayer or for accountability. And when they did, you saw them shamed, and you saw them shushed, and you saw them shunned. And you learned very early on that church is not a safe place to be authentic or transparent. We have to change that. And I want you to understand that doesn't change from the top down, it changes from the bottom up. By which I mean it's not going to be because some, you know, national leader decides that we're going to do better. It's not even because our pastor decides that we're going to do better. It's not because our elder board decides that we're going to do better. It's because you and I decide to do a couple things. It's because you and I decide to find the courage to be vulnerable we take a risk and tell our story and talk about what we're going through. And it's going to be because when others do the same, we refuse to be a part of shaming them or shushing them or shunning them. That's how that starts to change. Reading the Bible and being introduced to people like Rahab, who's going to be the hero of the story, and finding out that that's what she was doing for a living, you would think that churches would be super real places, right? Let's make our churches super real places. Now, in fairness to Rahab, you know, she may have done this as a matter of survival. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that what Rahab did was okay. It, it wasn't okay. Just like lots and lots of things that I've done are not okay. But in the ancient world, women were in a very tough position. If, if you were Rahab in ancient Jericho, if you weren't married, and if you didn't have family members willing to help you with your physical and material needs, um, you would find yourself in a, in a fight for survival. It's not like a person like Rahab could put on her career hat and reinvent herself. The ancient world didn't work that way. And so there were in ancient times, as no doubt there are in modern times, women who were desperate and, and who 
would then be faced with doing things that they never would have dreamed of doing just as a matter of survival. So part of what I'm trying to say is that however upsetting it is for us to read this about Rahab, and it is upsetting. It's not half as upsetting as it was for her to live it. And the other thing I'm trying to say is, isn't life just a whole lot better when we take even five minutes to put ourselves in someone else's shoes before we decide that they don't matter, that they don't have any value, or that we know all there is to know about you know, what they're doing and why? Because the truth is, we don't. Could Rahab live heroically? Not unless she let go of the past. Think about the guilt from her past. Think about all the guys, all the hookups. Do you have a past? Are there skeletons in your closet? I mean, the truth is, we've all done things that we're ashamed of. We've all done things that we're embarrassed by. We've all done things that we feel guilty about. But one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is when we allow our past to control our future. And you know why guilt from our past robs us of the future that God has for us? It's because we don't get forgiveness. I don't mean that we haven't received it. If you're a follower of Christ, you've received forgiveness. What I mean is we don't get it up here like, like we really struggle to wrap our minds around the idea that God has forgiven us. We, we struggle to wrap our minds around this concept that God forgives and forgets, as we sometimes say. Now, I know somebody will push back. Somebody will say, well, the Bible doesn't say that in exactly those words. Maybe not, but the Bible certainly teaches it. Think about verses like this one. Think about the verse that says that God takes our sins and dumps them into the sea. I want you to get a visual image of that. God is rounding up all of Alan Riggs' sin. It's going to take a while. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait. All right, so he's got all my sin rounded up. Now he's dumping it into the Mediterranean Sea. Can you see the storm surge? Beaches are disappearing all around the Mediterranean. Coastal cities completely covered with water as my sin is descending to the bottom. There's air bubbles coming up all around it. And finally my sin hits the bed. It hits the floor and the silt comes up around it, slowly settling until finally no one can see my sin. No one can find my sin. No one is ever going to dredge my sin up. Not even God himself, because he promises not to. Do you think that in my life or in yours, there could ever come a time when we're allowing guilt from our past to rob us of the future that God has for us, that God might say, I'm over it, why aren't you? Have you allowed a handful of guilty memories to control your life? To define you? To tell you who you are? This is one more of those things that can change today. Today we can make the decision that before we pass under that glowing red exit sign, we're going to leave that kind of living behind. We're going to stop living our lives from that guilty place. I think not only was there guilt from her past, I think there was hurt from her past. I think she'd had a falling out with her family. It mentions them uh, for the first time, but not the last, in verse 13. Now remember, I talked about her maybe not having a family. Well, she did have a family, and this is why I think that she'd had a falling out with them. If she had family living right there in Jericho, and they weren't helping with her you know, physical, material needs, what's up with that? I admit this is speculative on my part, but humor me. Just hear me out. Isn't it at least possible that if she had family in Jericho and they weren't helping her, that they were alienated, that they were estranged? 
Uh, maybe she was hurt. Maybe they were hurt. They were probably both hurt. There was probably more than enough hurt to go around. Have you been hurt? Truth is, we've all been hurt, right? I mean, is there resentment and anger in your life? You know why hurt from our past controls our future? Because we don't give forgiveness. So guilt from our past controls our future because we don't get forgiveness. Hurt from our past controls our future because we don't give forgiveness. Have you ever heard that saying, hurt people hurt people? It's really true. And one of the ways that I hurt the people who have hurt me is to withhold forgiveness. It's to be all like this. Like, I'll show you. I will never forgive you. I will never let you off the hook. You owe it to me to be miserable. You owe it to me to be miserable for the rest of your life. And I'm going to hold this IOU over your head. We're laying in bed in the middle of the night. We should be sleeping. We're not. We're not even counting sheep. We're thinking thoughts like this. We're thinking, I hope I never see them again. No, I hope I do, because I've got a thing or two to say to them. Like if I saw them at Lowe's or Home Depot, you know, I'd, I'd act like I don't even know them. That'd be good. Well, no, that's no good, because then I can't give them these zingers I've been working on. So I'd have to approach them, and then I'd say that, and they'd be speechless. That'd be awesome. No, that wouldn't be awesome because then I couldn't deliver the other zinger. So, so I would say this and then they would say that and it'd be really stupid and so I'd follow with this. We've got this whole thing going on in our head. Here they are at home. I mean, they don't even know that we're thinking that stuff. Or worse, they know and they totally do not care. This is why we say that forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. You know, when I give forgiveness, it ends any control the other person has over my life. Now, now, maybe this will help you to understand that there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. We're not talking about reconciliation today. It takes two people to reconcile. That's one reason. Not the only reason, but one reason why reconciliation isn't always possible. Now, I'm going to add something that you don't hear as often in church as that. And that is that not only is reconciliation not always possible, but reconciliation is not always desirable. You know, in some cases, to be reconciled to someone would not even be safe. But with that in mind, while it takes two people to reconcile, it takes one person to forgive. You can, I can, unilaterally decide right here, right now, today, to let go of this unforgiveness, to let go of this this sense of angst that we live with every day that someone owes us this, this unresolved relational debt. I know that's hard to hear, especially if your wound is fresh or if your wound is deep. It feels like, you know, what are you saying? If I forgive them, then I'm telling them that, that what they did wasn't wrong or that what they did didn't hurt. No, you're not. You're telling them no such thing. What you're saying to them is, that holding that IOU over their head is tearing you up, so you're tearing it up. It means that you refuse to live another day in spite of the fact that what they did was wrong, in spite of the fact that what they did did hurt. You refuse to live another day being completely controlled by this angst, this anguish over this unresolved debt that you feel like they have. Have you allowed a handful of hurtful memories to control your life, to define you, to tell you who you are? It's one more of those things before we leave that we get to say, I'm, I'm going to stop living that life. I'm going to stop living from that place. The idea is to let go of the past, to let go of past guilt, to let go of past hurt. You know what else we've got to do if we're going to live heroically? We have to face our fears. We're going to go back to the text, pick it up in verse 2. 
It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the spies had been followed. They'd been found out. Their cover had been blown. Could Rahab live heroically? Not unless she faced her fears. Now, fear is this universal thing. I know when I talk about fear that, that I'm speaking to everybody on some level. Have you ever seen that website, phobialist.com? I mean, this site that I'm talking about, it catalogs over 500 phobias. It's like you're scared of stuff you hadn't even thought of yet. It's crazy. How many people here are afraid of heights? Yeah, see, you're not even lifting your hand over your head because that would be too far off the ground. <laughs> How many people here are afraid of needles? Yeah? How many people here are like an unnatural fear of spiders? Okay. How many people here are afraid to raise their hand in public? <laughs> all right. All of you with your hand up, you pass. Go to the lobby, get some coffee. The rest of us have more work to do. I'm thinking of this picture of my now adult daughter, Lauren, when she was a little girl. Well, I should tell you now, she's in full-time ministry. She's the children's ministry director at Calvary Chapel in Tallahassee, Florida. But when she was a kid, she was afraid of people in costumes, which is why I thought it was a really bad idea the year she wanted to celebrate her birthday at Chuck E. Cheese, where the whole point is to have a person in a costume come to the table. So this picture that I'm thinking about was taken right when the rat was stalking the birthday girl. Lauren was completely freaked out. She jumped into Daddy's arms. So she's holding on to me tight. I'm holding on to her tight in her eyes. They were bigger than the pizzas on the table, man. It was unbelievable. Whether it was Lauren's childhood fear of people in costumes or my near crippling fear of a coffee shortage. <laughs> We've all got these things that freak us out, right? I mean, what are you afraid of? Fear is such a powerful emotion. Think about it this way. Have you ever done something that you wouldn't normally do because you were so scared? Or have you ever been so scared that you didn't do something that you normally would do? I mean, that's how powerful fear is. That's pretty powerful, right, to control us like that? Maybe that's why the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Did you know that? There's a lot of do's in the Bible. There's a lot of don'ts in the Bible. But the one that's repeated more than any other, in fact, over 300 times in the Bible, do not be afraid. That should tell us something, right? Well, if guilt and hurt are from the past, fear is usually of the future. But don't make the mistake of thinking that they're not connected. They are. One of the things that I'm learning is that in life, you either make peace with the past or you fear the future. And Rahab, she had every reason to be afraid. She was about to risk her life hiding the spies and lying for them, which raises another ethical issue, right? Earlier, we had the ethical issue of what were the spies doing at Rahab's place. Now, here's another. We don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it, it would seem sort of irresponsible for me to not at least address it and leave you wondering, like, was that the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? I'm just going to quickly give you my take. We can disagree about this and be friends, but I'll just throw it out there. 
I would compare what Rahab did in lying for the spies to what people in Europe did in World War II when they took Jews into their homes and hid them. And if Nazi soldiers came knocking on the door and said, do you have any Jew Jewish people here in your home? They said no. They chose life-saving over truth-telling when it wasn't possible to do both. They were in a position where they could not fulfill both moral obligations. They could only do one and had to leave the other undone. So rather than tell the truth and fail to save a life, they saved a life at the expense of telling the truth. And I don't believe there's any guilt in doing that. Um, again, we can disagree about that and be friends. I will say this, that if we were in a bad situation, if I was here on the stage when an active shooter came into the auditorium and you were back here behind these panels and they asked me, is there anyone else here? I'm going to say no. So you ought to feel pretty good being in my hands. <laughs> now, on the other hand, if they ask you and I'm hiding back there, you're going to say, yeah, that rig guy is right back there. Get him. So I'm a little freaked out about hanging out with you. Well, so as we think about Rahab, she could have played it safe, right? She could have refused to lie for the spies. She could have refused to hide the spies. Have you ever played it safe only to regret it later? What about that time that you struck out looking? And you still think about, maybe you even dream about, oh, if only I'd taken a cut at that pitch. Remember that time that you knew the answer, but you couldn't find your voice, like you just couldn't speak. You just couldn't get your hand in the air. Or that time that you wanted to volunteer, but you just couldn't bring yourself to sign up? What about that time that you couldn't decide about the house or the car and someone else got it? Or that time that you were like this close, this close to telling someone how you really felt about them, but you chickened out and you never had another chance? Rahab could have played it safe, like I said, refusing to do these things for them. But instead, she risked the life she had, the only life she knew, for the life that she wanted. To live heroically, you have to risk your life as it is. And that's a fearful thing. That's why to live heroically, we have to face our fears. Now, somebody is already thinking, well, you don't know me because I am not a risk taker. Like, I don't take any risks at all. Sure you do. I was in a bookstore not so long ago. You remember those? They had shelves and these things with pages. They were really cool. I liked them a lot. I pulled this one off the shelf. The title was The 100 Most Dangerous Things in Everyday Life and What to Do About Them. Do not read that book. That book will totally mess with your head. I didn't know that every year in the United States, more people are injured by teddy bears than by grizzly bears. Who knew? Apparently, you know, like a, an eye, a button can come off. You can have a choking incident. Did you know that every year in the United States, 40,000 people are injured by their television set? I have to admit, more than once, I've been watching America's Funniest Videos, and there'll be some kids roughhousing, and they'll roll into a dresser, and a TV will start to wobble and fall off. You could have a crushing incident. Did you know that every year in the United States, 60,000 people are injured using the toilet? Yeah. So don't tell me you're not a risk taker. <laughs> Unless you're prepared to hold it forever. The question is not whether to risk, but what to risk. Will you risk the life you have for the life you want, the life that God wants for you? Or will you risk the life that you want, the life that God wants for you, for the life that you have? The idea is to face your fears. What are you afraid of? What would you do tomorrow if you weren't afraid? 
In the verses that we're about to read, uh, Rahab uses fear words in verse 9. She uses fear phrases in verse 11. But when you get to the New Testament, and we'll talk more about it in just a few moments when we're wrapping up. But by the time you get to the New Testament, it doesn't talk about Rahab's fear. It talks about her faith. Which tells us something very counterintuitive about heroic living. We've made up our minds that heroes don't feel fear. But clearly Rahab did. She talks about it at length. Heroes, it's not that they don't feel fear. It's that they're not controlled by it. So I'm not telling you that as a follower of Christ, you're somehow going to evolve to the place. You're going to grow spiritually to the point where you don't feel fear anymore. In fact, it's the opposite. I promise you that you may feel more fear than people around you because God loves you way too much to let you stay in your comfort zone. He loves you so much, he's going to put you out there in places that are awkward and that are uncomfortable and that are a stretch for you. But what I'm saying is that we can grow to the point where even though we feel fear, we are no longer controlled by it. Imagine that. Imagine a life that's not controlled by fear. Imagine a thought life that's not fueled by fear. Imagine the ability to make plans you know, without being crippled by fear. Imagine a life free from fear's obnoxious control. To live heroically, we have to let go of the past. We have to face our fears. And finally, we have to believe. Look with me at verse 8. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. And give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Now notice what she heard in verse 10. She'd heard about the Red Sea crossing, about the kings defeated. Notice what she said in verse 11. She speaks of one God, singular. In Jericho, they believed in lots of gods. She speaks of a very personal God. She uses the pronoun your, your God. In Jericho, they believed in these impersonal deities. And she describes an all-powerful, everywhere present at once God when she describes him as being, quote, in heaven above and on earth beneath, end quote. In other words, I think that she had come to believe that Rahab and the way people did on that side of the cross had come to faith. And so picking it up in verse 14, so the men answered her, our lives for yours if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be in his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your word, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now notice, twice in verse 15, it says that she lived on the wall. So remember... Uh, we talked about the city and the two walls, the inner wall, the outer wall. She lived on that outer wall. 
So I'm way over here because I'm with you. You and I, we're on the approach to ancient Jericho. And as we look at it, we can see the inner wall, but we're focused on that outer wall where Rahab lives. Archaeologists give us an idea of what we might have seen. Here's what it might have looked like. We're probably looking at about a 15-foot, you know, earthen retaining wall, and above that, about a 25-foot brick wall. So now we're, we're going to ease up on Rahab's window. So you and I, as we get up underneath it and we look up at it, we're looking up like 40 feet. Which raises a question. What in the world was Rahab doing with a 40 or 50-foot rope laying around the living room? Did everybody in Jericho keep a 50-foot rope on the coffee table? Did only the people who lived on the wall keep a rope on a hook by the window? I don't know, but I'm guessing these were not the first men who had to make a hasty escape from Rahab's place. Just throwing that out there. She wasn't letting them go anywhere until they had a deal. And this just blows my mind. This raises a much better question than the rope question. And that is, why didn't she go with them? She could have led them to a cave in the hill country of Judah. Then when it was safe, she could have followed them to Acacia Grove. What if they didn't come back? Or what if when they came back, they didn't keep the deal? Or what if before they could come back and keep the deal, she was found out? They would have killed her for sure if they knew what she was up to. There's only one reason, and it's found in verses 13 and 18, and that is her family. Yeah, that family. Same family with which she'd had the falling out, from whom she was alienated, from whom she was estranged, where there was more than enough hurt to go around. What a mind-boggling thing. Could Rahab live heroically? Not unless she believed. Not unless she believed in God. Not unless she believed in herself, by which I mean the woman that God was making her. And not unless she believed in the future, her future. But not just her future, their future too. And she had so many reasons not to care about anyone's future but her own. She'd been overlooked by the eligible bachelors of Jericho. She'd been used by immoral men from far and wide. She'd apparently been abandoned by her own family. Who would blame her for wanting to get out? Who would blame her for never looking back? It's what I would have done. But the idea is to believe God for a big future that makes us and others bigger as Christians, don't we love to talk about vision, you know? The vision for our lives, vision for our ministry, vision for our church. Sometimes we talk in terms of like being given a God-given dream. So listen to this. If your God-given dream is only big enough for you, that's not God's dream for you. God's dream for you will always be so big that there's room in it for you and for others. And Rahab is the most amazing case in point. You know, when you get to chapter 6, you read about the battle of Jericho, and you find out that Rahab and her family were spared. Two verses after we read that, guess what we read? It says that at the time the book of Joshua was written, that Rahab was alive and well and living as a part of their community. How awesome is that? That's not half as awesome as this next thing. Because you get to the end of the Old Testament. And then you make your way through those blank pages between the Testaments. And then you get to the first book of the New Testament. And you get to the first chapter of the first book. And you get to the first verses of the first chapter. And there you find a tree. But not just any tree, a family tree. And not even just any family tree, it's Jesus' family tree. And this tree, as described to us, has these amazing branches. On these branches are carved the names of these women and men who lived heroically. And on one of those branches, we find carved the name Rahab. Oh, my goodness. I mean, this means that not only 
had Rahab become part of the community, but Rahab had fallen in love. Rahab had gotten married. Rahab had children who had children who had children until finally one of Rahab's descendants was Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, who many see symbolized in that scarlet cord as if to to prefigure, to, to pre-shadow, to suggest the blood that he would one day shed so that we could be forgiven. Incredible. Rahab had this ability that that is hard for us to even understand to imagine a better future for herself and for others. But do you think that even Rahab could have dreamed this? From prostitute to mother. How long had she worn that label, prostitute? And God comes along and just goes, rip! And in its place puts mother. You know, some years back, Miranda and I both went through very painful and public divorces and have worn that label, divorced. And God comes along and rip and replaces that with wife. God comes along and goes rip and replaces that with husband. What label do you need to hear God tearing off this morning? Loser, rip, failure, rip sinner rip what label do you need to see God putting in its place what I want to suggest is that when you get home today you find a tattered old bath towel and you're probably going to have a hard time finding a clothespin so I suggest a binder clip (laughs) you pull that towel over your shoulders and you cinch it up under your chin and you clip it up tight and begin to live heroically as you let go of past guilt and past hurt, as you face your fears, feeling them fully but refusing to be controlled by them, and as you dare to believe God for a different, better future for you and for others.